Well, people of God in Christ, I have good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? I am, uh, I'm sure that you've heard this approach to telling the news, and you've probably even used it yourself. Good news and bad news, or bad news and good news. Life in general is full of it. The Christian life not accepting Beware of any version or form of the Christian faith proclaiming only good news. The truth is that we live in the day of very good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. But we also live in the day when the bad news continues. The bad news continues in our own personal lives as Financial problems arise uh, as we struggle to get along with, uh, with our wife or husband, uh, as we experience discouragement, depression, and even at times the temptation to despair of it altogether. It all comes down to our focus. Will we rejoice in the Lord always, as God's Word calls us to do? Or will we get dragged down and and dragged along through a life of despondency when there is always the reason for joy in the gospel? However, and and it's a big however, the, the point is not that it's the bad news versus the good news, one or the other. You don't have to choose one over the other. In fact, you shouldn't choose the one over the other. If you do, if you you choose the bad news, then uh, you will only plod your way through a joyless life. If you choose the good news over the bad news, you will only be wondering why the good news is really such good news after all. As Christians, we need to hear both the the bad news of sin and the good news of God's grace and salvation. If you are a person who who listens to sermons, you you might arrive at the evaluation that the, the preacher preaches too much about the bad news. And that may be the case. Uh, Let the preacher repent of preaching the bad news apart from the good news. But it's more likely the case that though they be preached together, the bad news of sin only resonates more. Conviction of sin comes more easily and stays more constantly than the conviction of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. The passage before us this morning, Romans 1, verses 24 to 32 continues the teaching of God's word regarding sin. Are we dwelling too much on sin? Are we being morose and and failing to rejoice in the Lord by continuing on under the lesson of God's word regarding sin? No, we need to hear about sin. We, We need to be convicted more about our sin today than we were yesterday. We need this instruction Because the good news of salvation will not be heard. The full joy of Christ will not be felt. The great hope of heaven will not be cherished unless we understand our sin, falling more and more under its conviction. 
The first point this morning is the exchange of sin. The exchange of sin. One way to understand the depth of sin is to know what sin is by way of what sin does. It was said last time that the extent of sin's conviction in the human heart tends to be that sin is simply naughtiness, uh, a delicious breaking of the rules, uh, a, a taking of a cookie from the cookie jar when, when no one is looking. I will confess that uh, this past Thursday I, I snuck into the kitchen to see what I could find. Uh, the Thanksgiving pies were not being served as promptly as I would have liked. So I snuck into the kitchen and I found a plate of cookies and I took two cookies. I, I promised that was the extent of my violation. Two cookies. Although I did practice further deception by rearranging the cookies on the plate to hide that I had taken uh, two of them off the plate. Even more, I, I must confess that I ate the cookies and, uh, and I am deeply ashamed that uh, even more I enjoyed them. But is that what sin is, a, a taking of cookies? Uh, the teaching of Romans 1 is that sin is not just a, a violation of permission, but even an exchange of the knowledge of God for sin. Three times in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul describes sin as an exchange. In verse 23, he writes that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In verses 24 and 25, Paul writes, Therefore God gave them up because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And in verse 26, their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. The lesson on sin is that sin is an exchange it's one thing to take delicious cookies when they haven't been served yet. But sin is even trading one thing of great value in exchange for something that is sordid, even putrid. This is what Genesis 2 is, is talking about. And teaching us that, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and that the heavens and the earth were created for mankind, and, and that by creating the world and then giving mankind possession and rulership over all the earth, God was blessing mankind to the ultimate and the, further, the fullest degree. You've got to start there in the story. And what happened? Adam and Eve ate from the one tree that God had withheld from them. They exchanged the riches of God's blessings for the blip pleasures of sin. And that's worth meditating on. Because we just don't get it like we should. We, we want to think, oh well, it, it couldn't have been that bad to eat a piece of fruit. In other words, we, we want to make sin only a matter of being naughty, taking cookies, when sin is the exchange of infinite, eternal blessing for nothing more 
than the experience of sin. And we do the same thing, although, and, and, and we see the same thing all the way through Scripture. Uh, we see Abraham's sin, and, and, and we think, uh, we think uh, uh, oh, that, uh, that silly old Abraham. We see Isaac follow in his, in his father's footstep, footsteps, and we only smile and think, oh, isn't that the way it is, like father, like son? We see Jacob chosen over Esau, and so we excuse Jacob for his sins and rejoice in Esau's rejection. We see Israel's sin over and over again, and we yawn when the lesson belongs to us as well. That we too are so lost in sin that we would exchange five minutes of sexual stimulation for the eternal pleasures of heaven. And the culmination of the bad news of sin is the coming of Jesus, who showed himself to be a man who could heal the sick, who could cast out Satan, who could control the weather for the good of his disciples, who could even raise the dead. And and yet, what did the people decide in the end? But that he should die, even more that he should be crucified. Can we not see the the juxtaposition throughout Scripture, the the comprehensive goodness of God's creation in exchange only for the experiential knowledge of evil and for death and hell? And that's only the beginning. That exchange in the beginning is manifested again and again throughout history as Abraham gives his wife to another man to save his own life, as Isaac gives his wife to another man to save his own life, as Jacob cheats and connives to to get the blessing of God when the blessing of God was already promised to him by grace. When Israel worships false gods who demand the sacrifice of their children, rather than worshiping the God who had already blessed them and promised to bless them and their children beyond measure. One exchange after another is made within the history of God's grace to his people until the day when they yelled, crucify him, crucify him, demanding the death of the man who could heal the sick, cast out demons, calm the storm and the waves, and even raise the dead. And it's what you and I do every day when we sin. We can't pin it on others with an arrogant shaking of our heads. This is what sin is. Every time a sin is committed, it is an exchange of the glory of God for the stink of sin. It's the bad news. But it's the bad news into which the good news comes. How do we normally hear bad news but with a sense of despair? The federal government is corrupt. The IRS, the FBI, the CIA, the CDC, all corrupt under the ways of this world. Sorry to say it if the federal government is your God. But shall we despair? Well, yeah, let us despair of our false hope in the American dream. But let us hope in Christ. And if Christ will come again to to right the wrongs of, of a 21st century earthly government, 
he will certainly come to right the wrong of every sin, including your own sin, including my sin, including every sin. And since I've already forfeited the possibility of ever serving on the Supreme Court by what I just said, let it be clear that here is the avowed denunciation of sodomy and so-called same-sex marriage. It's really an oxymoron to speak of same-sex marriage. There, there is no such thing. There can be no such thing. And note again that the, the juxtaposition, two men, two women being married is not only not marriage, it is, it is the abomination of marriage. And the easiest thing to do for Christians is, is to just treat it as an anomaly. Uh, dare we say, just a bit of naughtiness. It is not. Homosexuality is an abomination to God. And it's an abomination exactly because of what marriage is. Because marriage between a man and a woman is the revelation of God as a husband to his people. Even as Christ is a husband to his wife, the church. On the giving up side of the exchange is verse 22. The glory of the immortal God is is given up. And verse 25, the truth about God is given up in the exchange. And let's remember what we are talking about here. The knowledge of God is revealed. Therefore, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So they are without excuse. I think here of the, of the tribesmen in, in Africa who has never seen or read a Bible, but he is without excuse for his ignorance and failure to worship God. But even more, I, I think of, uh, of the small town citizen in, in Indiana. No one is pressuring him to accept the abomination of sodomy and same-sex marriage, but he is yet without excuse. The school corporation serving him and, and his children are not adopting the latest material, but he is without excuse. The truth is before him, both by creation and by Scripture. Will he exchange the truth of God for a lie? Of course he will if he only looks to retire in Florida. He will unless God intervenes by the power of the gospel. The bad news must not be ignored. The bad news must be heard. But it must be heard so that the reality is known and so that the gospel will be understood as it takes hold of the human heart and, and promises the sinner both salvation and suffering in this life. So the second point in the passage before us is the sovereignty of God. And this is at least a, a piece of, of the good news, that God remains sovereign. God remains over and above the sin of mankind. Three times we hear of the exchange of sin, but at the same time we hear that God gave them up. 
In verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. In verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So what is Paul teaching us by this? Well, most basically that God is not passive when it comes to the sin of mankind. In other words, it's not that God is to any degree caught off guard by mankind's exchange of him for sin. But at the same time, God is not the author of sin. We are the ones who exchange the knowledge of God for a lie. But he is the one who remains in control as it happens. If you think about it, why, why doesn't the text just say basically that they went from bad to worse? The knowledge of God is plainly set before mankind from the beginning as God revealed himself through all that he had made in creation, but mankind chose to worship creation rather than the creator. And that led to further sin, the dishonoring of their bodies, dishonorable passions, natural relations exchanged for disgusting ones. It led to a debased mind, verse 28, to do what ought not to be done. So Paul traces the progression of sin, a a progression that begins with worshiping creation rather than the Creator. But all the way along, Paul keeps saying this, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. Why does he do that? Why does he say that? It's to keep us from thinking of a God for whom things are spinning out of control. And oh my, what will God do about all of this? We must not understand sin as something that God didn't anticipate, something that God had to, had to react to. We might settle for a God who simply meets the challenge of sin and prevails. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There's a parallel passage in Scripture. It's the story of Pharaoh and the exodus of God's people from Egypt. In the, in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, we hear of Moses being sent uh, by God to, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to command him to let the people of Israel go free. Not unexpectedly, Pharaoh refuses. But God begins to intervene and to carry out the plan he has always had. He sends plague upon plague upon Egypt so that Pharaoh is made to change his mind. But he keeps unchanging his mind, first deciding to let Israel go, then reversing his decision and not letting them go. And all the way along we are told sometimes that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Other times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God is the the sovereign God over the decisions of man. And the story makes clear that God was even orchestrating a story to be told. A story in which Pharaoh is being Pharaoh, but God is being God. The rebellion of sinners against God is a real thing. But God is in control. He is even sovereignly orchestrating all things for His glory. 
But then the Apostle Paul turns his teaching to, to draw each of us into the story by giving us what we might call an inventory of sin. To this point, we might be able to say, that's not me. The sins that Paul refers to, to this point, are the extreme sins. And we really do need to accept and hold on to the teaching of God's Word that homosexuality is an extreme sin. It is the revelation of the abomination of sin. But that doesn't excuse us. In other words, we may not be given to the extreme, but the extreme is only meant to characterize the whole. All forms of sin are evil, including all that the Apostle Paul inventories. Starting in verse 29, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. And if each of us is not yet convicted, the inventory continues. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Not convicted yet, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The point of what the Bible teaches about sin is is not to set one sinner above another by way of comparison. We all look pretty good compared to Hitler or to some corrupt politician or to a serial killer and so on. The point is to bring all sinners under conviction. And the point is not just to make us feel ashamed. Here's another very common shallowing up of sin. Sin is is just what makes us feel ashamed of ourselves. But verse 32 pushes the full conviction for sin, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In other words, the full conviction of sin is not just that I feel bad about myself, that I am a sinner, and that I'm under the justice of God, but that I deserve to die for my sin. I deserve crucifixion for my sin. I deserve to have all the blessings of God taken away from me, including sunlight and air to breathe and good land to stand on. For my sin, I deserve hell. And whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, the teaching of Paul is is that you already know this. At least that you should. That I already know this. Even as we sin again and again and again though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so one last clarification. It's, it's not enough to say, well, I, I don't practice homosexuality, but who am I to tell someone else what they should do? God's word tacks this on to the end. 
to make it clear that sin is not just what we do, but what we value and approve of within the sinful behavior of mankind so that it may cost us dearly in this life. But we cannot approve of what God declares to be sin. Bad news, good news. Which comes first in the teaching of God's word? I think the answer is that the good news comes first because the Bible first teaches about God's creation, God's good creation as a blessing to mankind. Then comes the bad news. Adam sinned and brought sin into the world. But then some good news again, even the good news of Christ, the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. Then more bad news, Cain kills his brother Abel. The people of earth become so corrupt that God judges the earth with the flood. But the good news continues because the seed of Eve, the line of Christ, survives the flood through Noah. The bad news, the people of earth gather in rebellion against God to build a tower and make a kingdom of evil for themselves. The good news, God appears to Abraham to give further promise that a Savior is coming. The bad news, Abraham is a sinner with Isaac his son and Jacob his grandson following after him. All the way through Scripture, it's good news and bad news. But in the end, the good news will prevail. That's the good news, that the bad news will be no more. The full extent of the good news is is that the bad news will be banished and removed from God's good creation. He He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Is there any more good, any better good news than that? But as we wait for that day, should, should we refuse to hear the bad news? Should we try to say that the bad news of sin belongs to others and not to ourselves? We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And death is hell. So is the Apostle Paul just being morose and, and, uh, and, uh, and gloomy in his opening chapter of Romans? No, he has good news to tell. He has good news to tell. He has good news to proclaim and to make known, but the good news must be spoken into the realm of the bad news, which means that the bad news of sin in, in another respect, is really good news. Good news in that it serves a good purpose. Because it allows us, the bad news allows us to understand how good the good news really is. So let's stay the course. Hope you're with me. Let's stay the course. We have another chapter and a half. Uh, of the bad news of sin in Paul's letter to the Romans. Don't roast the preacher just yet. The good news is coming. And it will be all the more good news as we understand all the more the bad news of sin. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, you do not spare our pride, but you teach us all that we need to know about sin and our need for salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you do not uh, flatter us, but that you teach us your truth, even when that truth is, is the conviction of our sin. And we thank you that we can always hear, we must always hear, the good news of Jesus Christ, even as we grow deeper in our understanding and conviction for sin. Thank you for your good news. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Christ and all that is ours in him. May we indeed rejoice in him each and every day. In his name we pray. Amen.